Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. One of the things that we're doing in October is we are walking through a series that we have called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. And from the middle of August until the middle of November, we are addressing some of the common questions that people have about our faith. People like us have these questions, as well as friends and neighbors and family members have questions about our faith. And so we have set up this series for us to be able to, to find some answers to these questions. The questions like we looked at last week, is the Bible reliable? Questions like we're going to look at next week, is Christ the only way to salvation? And if it is, what about those who have never heard? We're going to be talking about these kinds of questions in the weeks ahead. And you know, this series, I think, is really important for us to wrestle with and unpack because many times we are asked these questions and we're not certain about the answers to them. I know for me personally, whenever I came to OU, the first time I heard some of these questions that are on the screen behind me was a part of a classroom setting at OU, and the questions were being asked and answered by people that didn't embrace the God of the Bible. And it was a, a difficult thing to process. And uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm so excited about this series is that these are not questions that are new. They're questions that have been around for a couple of thousand years or longer, and there are answers to these questions from a biblical perspective. If, if God is real, which He is, then certainly we can ask him these kinds of questions, and certainly there are answers to them. And so we're reflecting on that over the next several weeks. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the question of hypocrisy. If Christianity is true, why are there so many hypocrites? And we're going to unpack that with a balance of our time this morning. But before we get there, I want to pray for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together today, and thank you for the fact that you are a big God, and thank you for the truth of James chapter 1 that, that tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can come to you and ask, and you provide abundantly and without reproach. You are the God of truth. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to you today that you would guide us into your truth, and I pray that you would be our instructor and our teacher. Father, that your spirit would help us to center on the things that you have for us today. And I pray that you would protect me, Father, from saying anything you wouldn't want said. But if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would quickly be forgotten. But anything I share today, Father, that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, we would walk forward in them in the power of your Spirit, we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the summer of 1995, I had uh, a great privilege of being a part of a mission trip to Russia. We were going to be spending a couple of months in the city of Volgograd, Russia. And so on our way to Volgograd, we flew into Moscow, and we were going to spend a couple of days in Moscow before heading down to Volgograd. So we land at the airport in Moscow, and we, we hop on uh, a bus, and there is the bus is full of us Americans. There's somebody driving the bus, and there was one uh, native Moscovite, somebody from Moscow, who was there on the bus with us, and I made sure to sit close to him because I was fascinated with his country. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. I had seen Rocky IV. I was very interested in just 
spending some time with this guy. And so we, we're, we're, we're driving in and we're asking him questions about the, the, the nation and about his city. And, you know, he's pointing out the spires of St. Basil's Cathedral off in the distance and uh, talking about, you know, Lenin's tomb and what the Kremlin looked like. And he was saying on that bridge over there is where the tanks were sitting when Glasnost was, was going down and the, the Cold War was ending and, and all this. It was just fascinating. But he told one story that from my perspective as an American was particularly interesting. He told a story about when President Ronald Reagan came to visit the Soviet Union um, back in June of 1988. Right before he left office, he came to, to Moscow for a nuclear arms summit. Those of you who were around back in the 80s, you remember this, right? He, Reagan goes to Moscow. He sits down with Mikhail Gorbachev, and they're going to talk about nuclear arms disarmament or, or agreements and those kinds of things. Well, the, the Russians were fully engaged in the Cold War at this point, and they, they really wanted to put their best foot forward, but communism had begun to show some cracks in the armor. And so the city of Moscow wasn't as beautiful as it once was, and this really bothered the Russians. They didn't want the president of the United States to see their city in disrepair. And so one of the possible solutions was to take the entire city of Moscow and bring it up to par, but that was an unrealistic suggestion. They didn't have the time or the money. And so instead, what they decided that they were going to do, really, it was a pretty ingenious plan. They were going to take the, the path that Reagan would be traveling, and they were going to make the road along that path beautiful. Then they were going to take the rooms where he would enter and stay, and they were going to make those rooms modernized and beautiful. And so they went about this project of renovating only the areas that President Reagan would see. But they ran out of time. And so what they had not yet done was the stuff on the outside. And so they came up with, again, what I thought was a pretty ingenious plan. See, at this point, Ronald Reagan was pretty old. And so they thought, that old man can't see up past two floors. So they, on the outside of the city of Moscow, on the roads that Reagan would travel, they painted and remodeled up two stories tall. These buildings went 10 stories plus. They painted up two stories tall. And as President Reagan drove the motorcade. It looked like the city was beautiful. But was it? No, it was just a paint job that was covering up some warts. And you know, before we, we, we hear that story and we think, those silly Russians, I mean, let's, let's put it in a little more local context. Let's think of it in terms of us. Do we ever want to put our best foot forward and maybe conceal some of the other realities in our life? I would say yes. And, and evidence of that is in each of your houses, there is probably a room or a closet where everything goes when somebody is coming over. And you just shove it all in there and you close it and you hope nobody ever opens that door. If your house does not have a closet or a room like that, blessings be upon you. But I think that many in this room can relate to that, right? Why? Because when somebody comes over, we want them to think that we've got it all together. We want them to think that our house looks like a magazine, when in reality, there's one place where everything is just stuffed and stored. Um, this is the, the reality of Facebook and Twitter. Uh, never has there been a tool in the hands of the common people like you and me that allows us to be our own press agents. What we put out on Facebook and Twitter is what we want the world to think about us. 
we put out the picture of us just killing it, just having a great time with our friends. We don't put out the pictures of our struggles and of the things that aren't going well, um, unless it's coupled with a really funny one-liner, again, to make us look pretty good. See, we are very much people who are interested in managing our perception. But one of the difficulties that comes with this reality of where our hearts are at as Christians is that some people look at Christianity and they reject it because they think it's only painted two floors up. Some people look at Christians and say, you know, you guys just put out a perception of being right with God through your church attendance and your Lord's Gym t-shirts and whatever else, and you put out this perception that you've got it all together, when in reality, I think they think our lives are, are, are broken. And so, this can lead to some real consequences, because as a world looks on at us, and if they think that Christianity is something only that, that covers the warts up to two stories, some people have come to reject Christianity on the basis of Christians. Sheldon Van Auken wrote in his book, uh, Severe Mercy, this is what he says. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, and their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians, when they are somber and joyous, joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive. Then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. But though it is just to condemn some Christians for these things, perhaps after all, it is not just, though very easy, to condemn Christianity itself for them. See, some have come to reject Christianity on the basis of what they see in our lives. And you probably have heard that before. These are people that would say, you know what, why would I believe in a religion that led the Crusades? Why would I believe in a religion that was a part of the Spanish Inquisition? Why would I believe in a religion that doesn't seem to make its adherents more moral than my neighbor who believes something else or maybe even as an atheist? Or even better yet, why would I believe in a religion that is practiced by the guy who goes to church on Sunday but swindles me in business on Tuesday? Why would I be a part of a, of a religion that my dad or my mom professed in my growing up years, but then they went home after church on Sunday and beat me or abused me? And the argument in those situations is that Christianity is just a religion full of hypocrites. I mean, the, the word hypocrite literally is a word taken from Greek that refers to an actor in a play. You know those old, like, play masks? The Greek actors would hold those masks up to their face and they would act out parts. And people called those things, they were hypocrites. They were actors. And, and that's the charge against Christianity. All of us are just painted up two stories tall. We're just hypocrites. And there's no reality. There's no substance. We might profess a lot of truth. We might pro profess a relationship with God, but we don't actually possess anything on the inside. Have you ever heard this? you ever thought about this? You ever wrestled with it? We're going to talk about it this morning, and we're going to look at it um, by looking at a couple of different movements. I really think that there's two ways that we can approach this question of why are there so many hypocrites, and 
two ways that are very important. It's important for us to have both understandings when we address this question. One piece of, of the puzzle is looking at the issue of hypocrisy from the inside out, and the other is looking at hypocrisy from the outside in. And so we're going to look at it both by looking at a couple of pieces of Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we're going to look at verses 27 through 33 as it gives us a little bit of understanding about understanding hypocrisy from the inside out. Because you see, hypocrisy can reveal a hollow inside. Hypocrisy can reveal a hollow inside. In other words, there are times where we see people who are professing something that they don't possess, and and what that does is it reveals the fact that they're just painted two stories tall. There's really nothing on the inside of them. Though they wear the Christian jersey on Sundays, though they may attend the Christian meeting on Wednesday, there is no reality of their relationship with God. Though they are professing something, they don't possess it. And so when we see eventually their alternate actions pour forth and pour through, it reveals the reality that they're hollow on the inside. Uh, This is not a perspective that is new. It's not something that is a 21st century problem. It's something that goes all the way back to the first century. It's something that goes all the way back to when Jesus was walking the planet, and there were a group of people that Jesus called hypocrites. There were a group of people that Jesus said, you guys are just actors playing a part, and those were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were people that said, we are very close to God. We are righteous. We have a very intimate relationship with God. And they said that out of one corner of their mouth, and then they went into their back rooms and they made plans on how to kill God. Because they didn't have a real relationship with God, they rejected the Son of God. They rejected Christ, and they made plans to kill Him. And and that dissonance between what they professed to be very close to God and what they possessed, which was not a relationship with him at all, made them hypocrites. And that was a reality that Jesus spoke out very strongly against. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 33, Jesus goes right after the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to what he says, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that there's a category of people out there that included the scribes and the Pharisees in his day. There are a category of people out there whose lives are like a whitewashed tombs. Tombs were were nothing that were beautiful in their day. Tombs were were places of decay. They were places where, where bodies went and they rotted. They were places of stink and of death. And Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, You're somebody that is that has put, you know, this beautiful exterior on top of something that is full of of death. And there's this category of people that were the scribes and the Pharisees. The the example or the modern-day parallel would be people within churches, even leaders within churches, who put forth a persona of godliness, who talk a good game, 
but who ultimately have never placed their faith and their trust in Christ. There are people who are managing a perception of them that they're on the right page when, in, in fact, they're not even in the book. Jesus says there's a category of people that their hypocrisy reveals their hollow inside. Verse 29 and following continues this. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's pretty strong, right? Was Jesus in favor of the scribes and the Pharisees? Was he saying that their model of merely decorating the outside of their lives while being hollow and dead on the inside, was that his plan? Absolutely not. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says that they would be sentenced to hell. Is Jesus in favor of hypocrites who merely decorate their outside with no reality on the inside? Absolutely not. What that reveals to us is that someone who is living that kind of a lie is somebody that has never really come into a relationship with Christ. They are professing something that they do not, in fact, possess. And this is a reality that was true with the scribes and the Pharisees, and this is a reality that is true today. There are people that go to churches all over the world today who, when they walk in on Sunday, they put their Christian shirt on. But when they walk out, they have no relationship with Christ. And some might look at that situation and think that Christianity is broken. But Jesus speaks in Matthew 23 to say, hey, I'm aware of the situation. And don't worry, those who have nothing on the inside but merely profess faith on the outside, I'll take care of them in the end. You know, the reality is that sometimes people want to reject Christianity on these facts. And, and you know, there's, there's something that, that we need to learn from this. You know, just because there's a counterfeit of something valuable doesn't make the real article any less valuable. Now, some of you might have hosted a garage sale before, and when you host a garage sale, if somebody comes and makes purchases, and they make purchases with large enough bills, there's a chance that you might receive a counterfeit bill. You know, if you go to some places of business and you give a $100 bill, what do they do to it? They take out a little yellow pen and they they mark it on there. It's kind of cool. It's like a spy movie or something. They put a little mark on there. They hold it up to the light, and they're able to tell if that $100 bill is real or a fake. But, you know, make no mistake, there are fake bills floating around Norman. If there weren't, they wouldn't do that. And you might have even received a fake bill at one time or another. But here's the question. Just because there's fake money out there, does it make you any less interested in using real money? No. Just because there's a few fakes doesn't mean that the rest of the money is worthless. Same thing could be said of, of valuable artwork. I've been to, to Paris before. I've been to the Louvre. I saw the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is an incredibly valuable painting. 
but you leave the Louvre and you go out on the street and there's like Mona Lisa coffee mugs and Mona Lisa, you know, little pictures you can frame and put in your hallway at home that are worth like, you know, a dollar. Um, now, the fact that there are copies that aren't the real thing that are only a dollar, does that make the original any less valuable? Absolutely not. And the same thing is true here. Jesus is basically saying there, just because there are counterfeits, just because there are some who profess something that they don't possess doesn't make the real thing any less valuable. And that's something we need to remember. I mean, I, I'll give you another example. Many of you here probably went to the football game last night. Anybody go to the football game last night? Fantastic. I want you to know there were more people in the first service that went to the game last night than you guys. I guess maybe it's the university population. I, I gave them a big thank you for getting up and coming in early today. But, uh, you know, you go to the game last night. When you walk in the stadium... You're going to see people in uniform. Now, some of those people that you see in uniform wearing the Sooners red jersey will be on the field, they'll have pads on, and they will be incredible athletes, incredibly skilled at what they do. They're the real deal. But you also see a bunch of people up in the stands who are way overweight, who are out of shape, wearing the Adrian Peterson jersey. You know, and if you walked in and you saw those people wearing the jersey, and you know, hey, I've, I've been in this group, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to myself, and you saw those people and you took them down to the field and you said, hey, show me some OU football, it would be awful. And if we made our assessment on the, the, the ability of the OU team based on those just who had a jersey on, just on those who were in the stadium, we might come to the fully wrong conclusion. And the same thing is true in Christianity. If we just look at those who are within the stadium, and we just look at those who are wearing the Christian jersey, it is possible for us to get a skewed view because some are the real deal and others are not. Jesus knew this. That's why he spoke out so strongly against it. Jesus said, I don't want you to be painted just two floors up. I want there to be a reality. I don't want you just to profess this. I want there to be something on the inside. I don't want you just to manage how I view you through your Facebook profile and social media. I'm not interested in just your outside. I know what's going on on the inside, and there are those who have whitewashed the tomb, but there's nothing there. One of the answers to the question of hypocrisy is on on the part of the individual who has not come into a real relationship with God, and yet is around the things of God. But there's a second category, and this is so important, so, so important for us today. We, we don't just look at this issue from the inside out. Hypocrisy can reveal a hollow inside, but there's an entirely second possibility, and that is that hypocrisy could reveal a misunderstood outside. Hypocrisy can reveal a misunderstood outside. In other words, if you see behavior that doesn't resonate with what somebody says they believe, it's possible that the problem is not just with the individual, but it's possible in the one who is leveling the accusation of the individual being a hypocrite, it's possible they don't understand what a Christian, being a Christian really means. Let me give you an example, unpack that a little bit. You know, Christians, we're people that walk around and talk about the relationship we have with God. If we have a relationship with Christ, we've experienced the forgiveness of sins. You'll also hear Christians talk about things like having a certainty of salvation. You'll go to a Christian funeral and you'll hear people say about how this person is 
is clearly in a relationship with Christ. If you come next week, you're going to hear Bruce talk about how Christ is the only way of salvation. You're going to hear those kinds of things. And you, you add all that up from the perspective of somebody who has not ever embraced Christ, and they're going to misunderstand what we're saying. Because somebody on the outside of the church, somebody who hasn't embraced biblical Christianity, this is what they think about life and and a relationship with God. They think that somebody relates to God on the basis of performance. In other words, if God is to accept me, then I must live a good life. I do more good than bad, then God accepts me. Or maybe it's graded on a curve. You know, the top 70% of people in the world on the, on the curve, get to go straight into heaven. The next 15% maybe to purgatory. The last 15%, that's what hell is for. That's the common perspective of those outside the church, that there is somehow it is, it is our performance. So when Christians talk about having a relationship with God, when Christians talk about a certainty of salvation, somebody from outside the church looks at us and says, you're saying you're better than me. You're saying you're good. You're saying you're living a great life. And because of that, you think you're so certain that you're so good that God has accepted you on the basis of that. And that sounds very arrogant. And then they're just watching. And eventually, anybody that watches us long enough will see a discrepancy between what we say and what we do. And when that happens, they go, aha, you're not as good as you think you are. You say you're better than me, but you're not. When in fact, these people over here, believers like you and me, we've never said we're better than them. Or at least we should never say that we're better than them. Because at the core of Christianity, this is where the misunderstanding is. The core of Christianity is not a belief that we're better. At the core of Christianity is not a belief that we're perfect. At the core of Christianity is the belief that we're sinful and separated from God. At the core of Christianity is that if God doesn't act, we have no hope. At the core of Christianity is not that we're perfect, it's that Jesus was perfect. At the core of Christianity, it's not that we're better, it's that Jesus is the best, and he provides the way for us to have a relationship with God, and only through him. Somebody from the outside looking in hears us say what we say and assumes that we're saying that we're perfect or we're better when in reality we're saying that we're sinful, but Jesus is great. It's just a misunderstanding from the outside looking in. And you know what the reality is for for you and I here today? If you've trusted in Christ, it's so difficult to think through life, because even though we have a relationship with Christ, we, we still blow it. We still commit sins. 1 John 1, 9, it is imperative for the believer to confess our sins. Why? Because we commit them. At the core of Christianity is not a belief that we're better. It's a belief that Jesus is best, and there's a misunderstanding. And we see the word hypocrisy used of people who really possess truth at times but are living at odds. And and this is something that that happens in the life of all of us, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, whether you have have entered into a relationship with Christ 20 years ago or 10 minutes ago or, or still seeking things out. All of us have points in our life where what we say is different from what we do because we're sinful people. I mean, in the, the patron saint of blowing it 
is the Apostle Peter, right? And there's an account of Peter in Scripture. This is one thing I love about our Bible. The, the flaws and the sins of, of those who have gone before us aren't concealed and hidden. They're written out for us in a book that is the most translated, most popular book in the entire world. Um, and Peter's flaws are recorded here. Years after Peter has trusted Christ, after he's followed him, he's a leader in the church. Paul has converted to Christianity. In Galatians chapter 2, we find that they're in this area of Galatia, which was in Asia, and they are there ministering to some people, and it was largely a Gentile congregation. There was this whole Jew-Gentile thing going on at the time, and Jewish people were nervous about Christians interacting with Gentiles because they might eat something, you know, some pork or whatever, and they were just concerned about it. And so there was all this pressure for Jewish Christians to, to reject and ignore Gentiles, and this event transpires in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, but when Cephas, or, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In other words, Peter blew it. He knew better. There was a line of behavior. He should have been welcoming to the Gentiles regardless of who was present, but he acted hypocritically. Paul calls him out. Now, here's the question. Is Peter a real Christian? Did Peter really possess a relationship with God? Yes. Will Peter have an eternity with, with, with God. Is, is he in the, in, the, in the presence of God now? Is he in heaven? Yes, we know this because every joke begins at the pearly gate. There is Peter, right? So Peter, we know he's in heaven. We know he had a relationship with, 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 with Christ. And yet here he is living out a life that is at odds with what he professed and believed. Guys, this is us. Peter is us. And Paul says, what in the world are you doing, Peter? He calls him out. But then he goes on, and in verse 15 to 17, this is what Paul says. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Why is it that Peter is before God? Is it because he's better than us? No. Is it because he was perfect? No. It's because Jesus is perfect. 
It's because Jesus is best and provides the way for sinful people like Peter and you and me to be made right with God, to have a real relationship with God, to really possess of righteousness, not just an an exterior facade, but really something happening on the inside. That happens not by us being perfect, not by us being better. It happens by the work of Christ alone. And as Christians, we, we, we just have to remember this. When, when somebody looks at our lives and says, there is a difference between what you say and what you do, I, I notice that at times you say these things and you go to church, but it, you look like you blow it occasionally. You know what we ought to say? Absolutely, we blow it on occasion. You know, if, if we are going to bank our ministry and our influence in our community only on our perfection, you know what we'll do? will hide because nobody who sees us enough will ever buy that we've got it all together. But there is a power in a testimony that talks to your neighbor and when you blow it says, I am sorry. I've acted in a way that I shouldn't have acted. I'm, I'm so glad you came over and watched the game with us last night. I shouldn't have said that about the referee's mother. I am terribly sorry. I'm I'm so glad that we had an opportunity to do business together, but I am so sorry that I cheated you out of your, your share. Would you forgive me? What does that do? Those moments take the ammunition away from the hypocrite and it, it, the hypocritical uh, comment, and it does it on the basis of truth. We're not saved by our perfection, so why should we act like that? We're saved as imperfect people saved by a perfect God. We ought to be very adept at apologizing and admitting our weakness because the God who knows us the best forgives us. Therefore, we have the ability to seek forgiveness and restoration from others. And as we do that, it gives us the opportunity to talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to to, to seek forgiveness and to to call our failures our failures and our, our shortcomings our shortcomings, but as we do that, it gives an opportunity for us to talk to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and to say, you know what, I blow it, I blow it regularly. I'm so thankful that my eternity is not based on my performance, it's based on my God and what he has done for me in Christ. See, when you talk about this issue of hypocrisy, there's two ways that we can look at it. We can look at it from the inside out, and there are times that somebody's behavior reveals the fact that there's nothing on the inside. They're a whitewashed tomb. They're a scribe or a Pharisee. But there's other times that when it comes to this this issue, um, it's merely a misunderstanding. And sometimes it's a misunderstanding from somebody on the outside looking in. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding by us Christians thinking that it's our job to be perfect. Hey, we're, we're supposed to walk with God. He wants us to walk in obedience, but you're not going to be perfect, and neither am I. And if we're depending on our perfection, even for our daily walk, we're going to live a life of discouragement, and we're never going to see the opportunities that God has to use us in the lives of those around us and in our community because God doesn't use perfect people. He does. He used Jesus, but he uses imperfect people today like us with the perfect Son of God working for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up.
We're going to conclude here with a song um, that, that reflects on the idea of how we have the opportunity to worship God from the inside out, not just a whitewashed tomb, but, but really relate to Him. Um, but but as, as we do that, as they prepare to lead us, I, I want to just, just share this thought with you. You know, in a, in a, in a room like this, on a day like this, there, there's this there, there are people in this room that need both halves of this message. I, I believe that there are people here today who have been a part of the church, maybe on the periphery, maybe um, you're here today with a friend, but you kind of kind of have the Christian jersey on, but on the inside, there's, there's no real relationship with God. And, and this morning, maybe God is calling you to, to worship Him from the inside out, not just the outside out to really have a relationship with him through the work of Christ. And, and I would encourage, if that's you today, for you to trust Christ. If you are, if you are here today and, and you are, have been living a life with the misunderstanding, maybe you trusted Christ long ago, but you've been living your life in this misunderstanding that you have to be perfect in order to be used and you've lived in this, 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 this lie and those kinds of things, that God is encouraging you today to, to, to make restoration with somebody that you've wronged, to ask for forgiveness. Um, whatever it is, we have the opportunity to be accepted by God from the inside out. You know, so much of our life is accepted from the outside out, isn't it? You know, high schoolers who play football or volleyball or basketball or whatever, you feel like you're accepted by that jersey. But when the last game is played and the jersey comes off, are you, is there any significance left? Maybe for, for grown-ups, it's a, what's on our business card. I'm accepted, I'm a valuable because of what's on my business card. But what happens when you retire? What happens when the job is done? What happens when downsizing happens and the, the card changes? Does God accept us any less? You know, so often we live our lives from the outside out. What a blessing it is for us today to know that Christ accepts us, not from the outside out, but from the inside. He wants to not just whitewash the tomb, but he wants to resurrect our souls. Please stand and join us.